Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. Become a new card member, and at the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you've earned, dollar for dollar. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Only for new card members. Limitations apply. Hey, thanks for listening to Planet Money. After you listen to this show, uh, we suggest that you check out some of the other fine NPR podcasts, including Snap Judgment with Glenn Washington. It's a great storytelling program. If you like The Moth, This American Life, you're going to like Snap Judgment. You can find Snap on iTunes under podcasts. Is this where it was? This is exactly where it was. Sign says, danger, high voltage, keep out. Oh. <laughs> I don't think that means the fence has a light. They haven't painted this thing in probably in 50 years. It looks like one of those ruins you see in a sci-fi film, you know, like Alien when they go to the planet and they're like, what's left of the civilization? It looks space age. I guess it literally was space age. The New York Pavilion, the 1964 World's Fair. Do you know the people promoting this fair said it was going to be the greatest single event in history? <laughs> Here we are on the threshold of tomorrow. Here off the internet, I got the actual guidebooks to the 64 World's Fair. Oh, listen to this. The pool of industry, the fountain of the planets, the court of the universe. The fountain of progress. Progress is the sound of a motor, the heartbeat of a factory. Roar of a rocket. Robert, check it out. There's the symbol of the fair. The great unisphere. Unisphere. We might call it a globe. Made of stainless steel, the unisphere is 140 feet high, 120 feet in diameter, and weighs 700,000 pounds. It is the Earth as conceived by U.S. steel. I have to say, this is still an impressive sight. I mean, it's beautiful. So I saw an old photo of this, and there was a dude in a jetpack, like, zooming around in the air above this thing. Like an actual guy in an actual jetpack flying. A real guy. It was like an early prototype or something. The future looked awesome back then. Let us explore together the future. A future not of dreams, but of reality. It is now tomorrow. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. All right. You want to do the hello and welcome? Sure. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm David Gestenbaum. Today on the show, the future. Yes. We spend a lot of time thinking about the future, planning for the future. But in 1964, a bunch of people had to actually build their vision of the future. They had to commit to it here on this spot in a park in New York City. They built the future out of concrete and steel and glass. And formica. There's a formica house. Wipe it clean with a sponge. Today on the show... The future as seen from the 1964 World's Fair. And how the future actually turned out. Which I suppose you know, because we would. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> There's a great big The way I ended up with this guidebook to the 1964 World's Fair is that it was my parents' wedding anniversary recently. And as a gift, I was looking for something from the year that they got married. I was looking around on eBay, and I found this guidebook. 
When the book arrived, I did not want to give it up. It is a fascinating thing to read through, to see how 50 years ago people thought the future might look. There are some things in this book where you're like, really? We thought that would happen? And there are other things that you're glad did not happen, like this machine for cutting down the rainforest to make roads. A jungle road is built in one continuous operation. First, a searing ray of light, the laser beam, cuts through the trees. And there are other things from the fair where you're like, really? You had that back then? Apparently, there was a picture phone at the fair 50 years ago. Someday, people may want to see as well as talk over the telephone. In a place where electronic wonders abound, a marriage of sight to the drama of sound. So what we're going to do today is pick a few things from the guidebook and have various members of the Planet Money team do some actual reporting. Try to figure out what happened to these things. Zoe Chase's assignment was that picture phone. All right, Zoe, you ready? I'm ready. Here's what I want you to do. Find some person who tried out the picture phone and figure out why, and this was 50 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Why it took so long for it to actually happen. (laughs) I will do that for you. Robert Smith got one of those things from the book that somehow never happened, though it seemed awesome. The Underwater Hotel. And in warmer seas are new realms of pleasure. Oh, look, the octopus. Ooh. A weekend, if you wish, at Hotel Atlantis in the kingdom of the sea. Look at this thing. Like, this is awesome. How do, they, how do you get into the hotel? Is that a tube that goes up? So, yeah. It is clearly, it's clearly an awesome idea. Right. So figure out what the heck happened. Yeah, I will look for one I can check into and tell you exactly why it didn't work. <laughs> one of the nice things about looking back 50 years is that it was both a long time ago and also not that long ago. To get a feel for what it was really like to be there, I talked to Larry Samuel, who wrote a book about the fair. He grew up nearby on Long Island. He remembers very clearly going to the fair twice and very clearly remembers the time he did not go. His parents decided to just take his older brothers. They got into the car. I assumed I was going to go to the World's Fair, just as I had been in the past. And they started going down the driveway, and um, they waved goodbye to me. <laughs> and, uh, I, I totally remember crying in the driveway because I knew, I knew how, how much fun it was. As a kid in the 1960s, the idea that this was the single greatest event in history seemed about right. There was a Mercury spacecraft that had orbited the Earth. There was an eerie animatronic Abraham Lincoln, a new kind of television that somehow showed pictures in color. And there were objects from places that Larry had only dreamed of visiting. The guidebook mentions the famous Pieta sculpture by Michelangelo. This is the one of Mary holding Jesus' body after it's been taken down from the cross. I assumed the sculpture at the fair was a copy— But nope, it was a real thing. The first time it had left the Vatican. The Vatican um, brought it over on a boat. Yeah, they strapped it down. They got the pride of the fleet, you know, the safest ship to to carry it over. uh, People were very nervous that the ship would sink. But so it had all these flotation devices attached to it in case the the ship did go down in a storm that the Pieta would just pop up (laughs) and they would rescue it. They wanted to bring the Last Supper over too, but that, that, that didn't happen. People were too nervous about that, that leaving humankind's great past and our even greater future, or at least what we thought the future would be. Zoe? Yes, David. Did you find someone who used the picture phone? Yes, I did. I'm Vito A. Terso. I'm the deputy commissioner for the New York City Department of Sanitation. Vito is from Queens. Basically, when he was 16 years old, he got a job selling pizza at the fair. And he said one of his very favorite parts of the fair was the picture phone. He used it all the time. To walk into this room and see in front of you this, this little, little screen with a black and white image on it and, and 
have a conversation with somebody on a phone through through a te- with, with like a small television, and and it just it was incredible. The lines to 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 use the 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 picture phone were were you know unending. Yeah, so people were really excited about them. And in in just this one example, I can explain to you why they didn't take off. Basically, AT&T set up three picture phones, okay? One at Grand Central, one at the Prudential Building in Chicago, and one at the National Geographic Building in Washington. That was it. Okay? (laughs) That's not so useful. (laughs) So in order to make a call on the picture phone, You'd have to make like a plan. You'd have to call your friend, be like, go downtown. On the regular phone. On the regular phone. Meet me, you know, on the picture phone in Chicago. I'll be in New York at Grand Central. We can talk for three minutes at a time, and it's $16. Which was a lot of money back then. Like 120 bucks uh-huh. ish And it was expensive just because it was... Because you have to use so many phone lines. Like, you have to transmit so much more data when it's a picture. And so you're paying for all the use of those phone lines. And this is before computers, really. So they were sending it in some, like, complicated television-like way. Exactly. And that sort of explains why we have them now and why we didn't have them then. Zoe, how do you feel about the picture phone now that we have them on our phones? I hate it. (laughs) I hate people looking at me. I, I, I refuse to use it. My mom called me one time with the picture, but that was the only once. We are so jaded in the future here. I give you magic, and you're like, ah, I'd rather just communicate in little cryptic 140-character messages. It's sort of surprising how hard it is to predict the future. The things that we think will happen don't, and we often miss the big stuff. I mean, sure, there are sometimes big breakthroughs that no one could see coming, but often the parts of what is to come are all around you. You somehow just can't see how they're going to fit together. Larry Samuel points out that the fair totally missed what arguably has been the biggest, most futuristic thing that was going to unfold over the next 50 years, the computer. IBM did have an exhibit at the fair, but a bunch of it was devoted to the Selectric typewriter. Here's a better way to put words on paper. A remarkable electric typewriter. IBM did have an exhibit about the computer, but Larry says the computer was presented just as this machine that was good at adding numbers. Seemed boring. I wouldn't say it bombed, but, you know, I think it was just, it was, people, you just couldn't get it. And they tried to break it down and do little skits and little, you know, puppets and stuff to make it really easy. But I think it was beyond the reach of most people. As a kid, which did you think was cooler, the typewriter or the computer? Oh, definitely the typewriter. (laughs) (laughs) That was the vision of the future. You with your fancy typewriter in that underwater hotel. A holiday of thrills and of adventure of radiant wonders in the sunbright gardens of the sea. The hotel was part of an exhibit called Futurama, where you sat in these comfy chairs and were slowly pulled through elaborate dioramas of what the future would look like. One laid out this whole underwater economy. In the future, it said, we were going to be growing food on the ocean floor. There would be aquacopters, submarines delivering cargo like underwater trucks, which, you know, okay, I get why that didn't all fully happen. But why not the hotel, Robert? Are there any underwater hotels? I was able to locate one, the Jules Undersea Lodge. (laughs) It is a former research facility that was down the Caribbean or something, and they dragged it up to Key Largo, Florida. It's in a lagoon there. Is it fancy? Uh, It's pretty bare bones. You have to put on a scuba suit in order to get there. And, you know, there there are windows that look out to kind of a murky lagoon. (laughs) Uh (laughs) It is definitely rough traveling. What's the food like down there? 
You can have a pizza delivered by – they have photos of a pizza delivery guy in a scuba suit, uh, but they basically have a microwave. You can't really have open flame because it's an underwater hotel. They have oxygen pumped in there. It's pretty limited what they can do. Has anybody tried to do a big fancy one like in the movie? You know, I talked to one guy, and he is trying to build a, a giant underwater hotel next to a reef in Fiji, and it's called the Poseidon Undersea Resort. But even he won't tell me an opening date. There are some technical challenges he's working on. Apparently, it's difficult to get really thick plexiglass for the giant windows he wants in the hotel. And it took him a long, long time to raise the money to do this. Investors are unwilling to throw $100 million when they don't know if people are really going to want to sleep underwater anyway. Well, when I talked to these guys, um, they said that finding the money is really the hardest part. I mean, this is what they don't talk about at the World's Fair, right? That, like, you can dream of <laughs> tomorrow. How's the financing work? Yeah, you can dream of tomorrow, but you're going to have to go to a banker and say, like, hey, um, what if we take your $100 million and put it at the bottom of the ocean? When people are building World's Fairs, they always invite the scientists, the dreamers, the diorama makers. They never invite the bankers. Okay, so a lot of things predicted at the fair did not happen. But the world has changed a lot over the last 50 years. This is a different world that we live in now. Lots and lots of little things are different. You can see that by looking not at the list of exhibits, but at what's next to them in the guidebook. The ads, which sometimes include prices. This brings us to the final assignment for Jacob Goldstein. We started out by looking at an ad for socks. If you want to see everything at the fair, you need at least five days and a pair of sup-hose socks. <laughs> Supportive socks for men. Sup-hose socks will be one of the most popular exhibits at the fair. You'll see them everywhere. Here's why. Sup-hose helps ease leg fatigue. <laughs> Only Sup-hose has the patented two-way rib that gives you the support you want and, at the very same time, makes you look good. Four ninety-five a pair. That seems like a lot to me in 1964. So that's my question. Like, what has happened to the price of socks? What has happened to the price of socks since then? Okay, great. I'm in. We also had Jacob look into food. The guidebook listed restaurants. Ooh, restaurants is a hard one, right? Because it's like a, it's a service. Also, the food's probably good. better. But you could do like steak. Like a steak is a, still a steak. Okay. And one more key thing: transportation. Subway. This is an ad that ran at the time. Fifteen cents. Clothing, food, transportation. If you correct for inflation, what has happened to the price of these things? I love my assignment. It's way more exciting than I expected. I overheard Jacob all week making sometimes long, frustrated phone calls about this. Turned out to be the hardest of the three assignments, but he was not deterred. My spreadsheet. You made a spreadsheet? I need my spreadsheet. <laughs> Wait, that's like a big spreadsheet. Honestly, well, that's a, that's like a one, but I made like a... <laughs> Bureau of Labor Statistics data. This was fun. So, okay. You ready? Yeah, tell me what you found. So, socks. First right. thing you asked me was socks. Sup hose socks. These socks advertised in the book. These cost $4.95 a pair. In today's dollars... $4.95. That's $38. <laughs> they are really expensive socks. They, they, they are were. crazy expensive. It seems like there are two possible explanations. One is that that was an ex incredibly expensive pair of socks, or, uh, or socks have just gotten a lot cheaper. 
Yeah, I think it's both, actually. I I looked up in an old Sears catalog, and yes, regular socks back then were a lot cheaper. But definitely, definitely, socks today are profoundly cheaper than socks were in 1964. Clothes overall are like one-third the price today as they were. They've fallen by more than half. And, you know, I mean, I was thinking about this, right, because this whole book is like the this of the The future. Yeah, Yeah, this whole guidebook is like, you know, and this is like, what are the socks of the future? It turns out the socks of the future are exactly like the socks of the past, but way cheaper. (laughs) Basically, almost anything that is like that is made in a factory, essentially, that is that is mass produced, has gotten a lot cheaper. So, uh, you know, with socks, obviously, a big driver of the of the decline in price is globalization, right? Today, socks are made overseas. 64, they were made much more here. But another one is just uh, just technology, right? Better machines can make things cheaper. What about food? So you (laughs) you pointed me to this restaurant page, right? And there's all this kind of general stuff. But I found in here this really interesting detail. I want you just to read this right here where my finger is. Tad's Steaks serves in cafeteria style a $1.19 dinner featuring charcoal broiled sirloin steaks. Steak dinner, Tad Steaks, $1.19. In today's dollars? $9. $9.15. So how does that compare for getting a steak out? I'm glad you asked because there is a Tad's Steaks on 50th Street today, eight blocks from here. This is a picture of the number 10 Tad's special. Nice. The traditional cut boneless baked potato garlic bread. Thirteen fifty nine is more? It's more. And in you do ge- get the garlic bread. You do get the garlic bread. What's interesting about this is when you look at just the price of food over the last 50 years, food has actually gotten a little bit cheaper. But when you look at what it costs to eat in a restaurant – it's actually gotten more expensive, right? And that's because restaurants themselves haven't gotten that much more efficient. You still need basically the same number of waiters. You still got to rent the same amount of space. And so that one, unlike manufactured goods, has actually gotten more expensive over time. All right. Socks cheaper, steaks in restaurants, a little more expensive. Yeah. Last one, Subway. How much was it? So it was 15 cents then. Yeah. That is $1.15 today. Ooh, that's less than it actually is. A lot less. It's two fifty today. Yeah, to so it's like in real terms, in inflation-adjusted terms, it is twice as expensive today. And this one is like the hardest one to answer why, because the subway like doesn't exist in the economic world we live <laughs> in, right? It's subsidized by the government, and what the fare should be is is more a political question than an economic question. Right. I did find this this one expert, this guy at this place called the Regional Plan Association, and he basically told me in 1964, the government covered a bigger share of the ride, right? The government subsidized more of the fare than it does today. And so that's at least one part of the reason why the fare has gone up so much. I wonder how good those socks were. <laughs> they better have been amazing. There is zero chance you would ever pay $38 for a pair of socks. You do know me. Dude, you wouldn't even pay four ninety five today for a pair of socks. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream away. All right, there's one more thing I want to show you. Awesome, right? Oh, my God. The time capsule. It says, October 16th, 1965. Deposited here by the Westinghouse Electric Corporation as a record of 20th century civilization. To endure for 5,000 years. I guess we're, we're already partway there. Yeah, it's 4,950 years to go. <laughs> I found a list of some of the things that went into the time capsule. 
It's kind of amazing looking back at them. They're sort of mundane now. There were contact lenses, a ballpoint pen, an electric toothbrush. You know, as we've been putting together the show today, we keep asking ourselves this question. Like, what if we could go back in time to the fair and tell people, you know, how things actually turned out 50 years later? What would we tell them? I'd probably spend an hour showing them my phone. But, you know, then there'd be more difficult questions. They'd say, what about the moon colonies? I have to say, oh, there are no moon colonies. What about living under the ocean? We're not living under the ocean. In fact, we still got a lot of problems. Larry Samuel, who wrote the book about the fair, says even back then, people didn't exactly believe the utopian future that was laid out there. Remember, this was 1964. It was a time of the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. The hipsters saw the fair as Squaresville. And outside the fairgrounds, there were things going on that made the fair seem hopelessly naive. The president, JFK, had been assassinated just five months before the fair opened. There were civil rights protests, a difficult kind of progress not on display at the fair. The Vietnam War was on TV news at night. The economic boom of the 50s was fading. People went to the fair, he says, because it was a fantasy. I think people wanted to believe it. To some extent, we were an innocent country and innocent people. I think a lot of Americans were trying to do the best they can to hope that this could be the future, even though there were signs that it clearly wasn't going to happen. The fair, he writes, was the last time and place in which the harsh realities of the mid-1960s could be ignored on such a large scale. Larry Samuel's book is called The End of the Innocents. I really recommend it. It's filled with crazy, colorful stories about what the fair was actually like, including the great garbage controversy at the Spanish Pavilion and epic battles involving Robert Moses. The opening for the show today was produced by Brendan Baker, the rest of it by our own Thea Benin. Special thanks to our excellent intern, Jason DeLeon. We'd love to hear from you, planetmoney at npr.org. And if you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Snap Judgment. You can find it on iTunes under podcasts. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Hey, David, call for you on the picture phone. Look who it is. It's Zoe. <laughs> no, I'm Zoe. Who are you? Hi, Mom. See, David, aren't you glad we have the video phone? Oh, I'm glad. I think he's in the best place for him. He was a very creative child. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, we're in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Okay? Okay, I love you. Good? Okay. okay. Thanks, Mrs. Kessenbaum. Bye.